You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. This weekend, we're not only acknowledging graduates and fallen heroes, but we're also beginning a four-week series on legacy. And our aim in this series is to help each of us recognize that we all leave a legacy for those who come after us, whether that's a, a good legacy or a bad legacy. The important question for each of us to ask during this series of messages is, what kind of legacy are we leaving behind? Now, this series of messages uh, follows a five-week series of messages on lessons we learned from the victorious leadership of Joshua as he led the people of Israel, uh, the Israelites, out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River, into the promised land. In this four-week series, we're also going to continue to learn from Joshua and the lasting legacy that he and the Israelites left behind as they continued to live out their lives in the promised land. Now, through this series, we're going to see both good and bad examples, as is the case today, as we examine some of the attitudes and struggles that they carried with them into the promised land. Now, if you were here last week, Andrew, our student minister, was just up here, did a great job describing the amazing the victory that Joshua and the people of Israel had at Jericho as a result of God's power and God's promises. Now, very appropriately on this weekend that we're remembering the personal losses suffered by us as a nation, even in conflicts and wars that we emerged as the victor, This weekend, we want to learn from a terrible loss in Israel, suffered on the heels of a great victory. So let's pick up the reading this weekend in Joshua chapter 7. If you have a Bible or Bible app, you might want to follow along, or if you got message notes, you can even fill in the blanks as you go. Now, as we read, coming off this great victory that, that Uh, Andrew described last week with Joshua uh, leading the people of Israel, marching around the city of Jericho, and then doing this loud shout, and the walls falling down. And by the way, Jericho was this huge fortified city, so it was a great, great victory. Coming off the heels of that, there's this sad transition word, the word but. And that's how chapter 7 begins. In light of all the victory, but... Verse 1, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, the devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, if you go back and read Joshua chapter 6, you'll learn that the Lord had specifically instructed uh, Israel not to take any plunder from Jericho, but instead to destroy everything that belonged to that city and that culture. Now, we we mentioned this at the beginning of last series as we started Joshua, and I want to mention it again because, you know, when we read these 
these, uh, these passages and these chapters in the Bible that describe conquests and, and battles and, and wars, even wars that God commissioned, sometimes we struggle and we're like, how do you make sense of that? Well, I think it's important to get the, the total context. And, and when we started the victory series, we talked about how that, that really, even though we might struggle with why did God ordain this war, if you go back and look at what was happening in the context, when you go back and look 400 years earlier when Abraham, the, the, the patriarch, the, the ancestor of all the Jewish people, when he answered God's call, God said, okay, I'm going to give you this entire land. It's going to be all yours. It's the promised land. But he said, not now. Because he said, the people that occupy it now, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, the Jebusites, he said, those people, their sin has not yet reached its full. And so what we actually see as we try to dig a little deeper is we see God's incredible patience that he had waited for 400 years longing for these these people groups to repent and turn to him. And what you find is that by the time uh, the Israelites occupy the promised land, I mean, these people are doing atrocious things, evil things. In, in names of, in worship of their idol worship, they're doing child sacrifices and all these terrible things. And finally, God says, I just can't take it anymore. I'm going to wipe the slate clean, and I'm going to start over in this promised land area with my people, people that are going to be called to serve. So maybe that helps you get a little sense of what's happening here and, and why it's so important. But, uh, but we find we're introduced in, in this guy named Achan, who had secretly carried away some of the plunder of Jericho, even though they were instructed not to do that. Now, as a result, the Lord was angry with the entire nation. And unbeknownst to Joshua, as he's ready to lead them into another battle, this is all going on in the backdrop. And Joshua is unaware. We have the, the advantage of being able to see what had happened and what was happening as the story unfolds. Let's keep reading in Joshua chapter 7. Let's look at, we're going to hopefully get through four lessons we can learn from this text. The first is, if you're taking notes, is the danger of reliance upon self. The danger of reliance upon self. In verse 2, Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, east of Bethel near Beth-Avon. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since there are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. Now, let's just pause for a moment. What do you see here? It appears to me that, that Israel is so confident of their recent victory at Jericho that they are totally overconfident. In fact, they are taking for granted that they're going to defeat this little town of Ai, which was small, minuscule, and compared to Jericho. Now, now confidence is a great thing, and yet here we find Israel overconfident. And they seem to forget that it was the Lord who had brought about this amazing, great victory at Jericho. It was his power. So the overconfident spies said, don't send the whole army, just send two or 3,000 people. That's all you got to send. Let's keep reading in verse 4. 
So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. What a sad time for Israel, even in the promised land. Now, the fascinating irony of this devastating loss at Ai is that it it takes place at the very location that the father of the Jewish nation, uh, the father of all faithful people, Abraham, first called upon the Lord. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 12, it's at Ai that that Abraham first called on the name of the Lord and worshiped him. And yet what is strikingly missing from the four verses that we just read is that there's no mention of Joshua or Israel calling upon the Lord for direction, guidance, protection as they're going into battle. There's even no mention that they're seeking God's lead. Is, is it his will for them to go into battle? They're relying totally upon their own sense of direction and strength. You see, it's good to be confident. We, we want to instill that in our children, right? Or at work, Jane and I are at that point where we're wanting to instill that in our grandchildren. We want them to be confident. And yet the, the question is, what's the source of that confidence? Is it rooted in self? Or is it rooted in being in a relationship with God and, and trusting God's power and God's presence and God's promises in your life, and that you're valued greatly by God. Is it rooted in him, or is it rooted in our own strength, our own ingenuity, and our own self-reliance? It seems to me that Joshua and the people are drunk with victory, and they're so drunk with that that they don't even bother to pray. You know, it's an easy trap to fall into as an individual or as a group of people In fact, I think it's a pitfall, especially easy to fall into when when you've experienced great victory in life, either as an individual or as a group, to begin to take those victories for granted and begin to think it's all about you. In fact, later, one of the New Testament writers would look back to examples like this in Israel's history and said this in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us. If you are thinking, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. In my own life, I, I've learned personally that often, and this is, this is, and obviously I need to keep learning this, and the fact that I have to keep learning it over and over again doesn't speak well to me, I guess, but, but it seems like that when I go through a stretch of time where I just feel like, man, I'm just living that abundant life. I'm I'm sensing God working in my life. I'm I'm feeling victorious spiritually, maybe just some personal things in life. It's easy for me when I've come off a season in my personal life or as a church where we've had some great victory to kind of let my guard down and think, okay, I think I got this Christianity thing down. I I think maybe I'm learning what it means to be a Christian leader, and I kind of let my guard down. And it it it, it's amazing how many times after a great victory, I'll find myself 
coming under spiritual attack. I'll, I'll sense great temptation and even find myself giving in to a temptation back into an old habit or sin. And then I go, man, why did I do that? Why did I allow myself to let my guard down and be susceptible to temptation and have a spiritual defeat? Why? Because I was starting to rely on my own strength, my own uh, power instead of the Lord's. How about you? Do you ever find that happen in your life as well? You know, as a church family, we need to make sure we guard against that. We've recently, as a church, experienced some great victories. Uh, it's It's been real encouraging. We've had a, had a long season of strong unity where there's just that sense of, man, we're pulling together, we're working together. It's, it's awesome. I love that. I'm grateful for how we've seen our attendance go up this year. I'm encouraged how we've seen new people commit to membership. I'm so grateful that in our first five months of 2017, we've had 15 people make decisions to surrender their life to Jesus and be baptized. And we, want to, we long for more. In fact, I'm a little bit nervous about this Norwall over here in the baptistry. That's going to scare some people away. But we want you to know, we'll remove that, okay, if you want to be baptized, okay? Uh, because we want to see God continue to work. We, we want to praise God for the victories that we're having as a church. You know, earlier this year, we opened up the children's wing. Boy, that's, that was a great victory, wasn't it? To open up more space for kids here at Southwest. Last weekend, I, I had a ball, you know. Uh, I didn't preach last weekend, and Andrew preached, did a great job, and I heard him preach on Saturday night, really enjoyed the message, it was wonderful. And then Sunday morning, I thought, okay, I'm going to go check out the children's ministry. And so both services, I did a little welcome, and then I went back there and, and just enjoyed watching what goes on with the kids. And I want to tell you, I want to tell you, we could learn something from their worship. I mean, I saw guitar moves back there during worship, all kinds of stuff. It was animated. But, you know, it was great to see the kids learning about Jesus and excited about worshiping the Lord. You know, we're on the verge of another victory. In fact, I want to just ask you, pray. Pray that everything comes through this week. Uh, we're, we're hoping to get final occupancy of our student wing and our prayer uh, room. And we want to we hope by Wednesday, okay? Scott LeBlanc's on vacation, so I can say, he says, don't ever say dates, but, but pray that this Wednesday we get approved and that next week we can just dismiss the high school students and junior high students into the student wing. That would be a great, great victory. But you know, in the midst of all these victories, last weekend, the Southwest leadership teams spent a weekend together at a retreat center and we talked prayed, read scripture, brainstormed, seeking the Lord's lead and guidance for our future. We're excited about what God's done, but yet all of us sense that God's preparing us for even greater things to happen in the future. In fact, I, I just have the sense the next three years are going to be three really good years. And yet, we've been asking ourselves, and I want to invite you to into this journey all weekend, we had this key question up on the wall. What is God's vision for Southwest Church the next three years? 
And we went through all kinds of exercises and prayer time seeking to discover that. We're, we feel like we're, we're beginning to see, but we're not there yet. And we want to invite you to join us in praying. It's going to be a several months process as we try to determine what is God's lead. We don't want to run ahead and just do our thing. We want to make sure we're in sync with what the Lord wants to do. We want to, we want to learn from him what it means to be following Jesus. What does it mean to be making disciples? What is his vision for us as a church? Will you join me in praying about that? Now, not only does Israel and Joshua both end up falling as a result of their self-reliance, but unknown to them, now we've got an insight from the narrative, but there has been this secret willful disobedience by this guy named Achan. And the result of that hidden sin is that Israel suffers this embarrassing defeat and 36 innocent lives are lost in battle. And as we just finished reading, the people are paralyzed with fear as a result of this loss. As we keep reading, we'll see additional lessons we can learn, maybe even in our own lives when we become paralyzed by defeat. Let's keep reading. In verse 6, it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes, a sign of remorse, of grief, and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of the Israel, Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan River to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? What do you see? You know what I see? Joshua and the people are they they have sunk into this deep despair and they are doubting God's provision for the future. Joshua asked three tough questions during this prayer. He begins to look back and he second guesses the progress that they've already made. You see Joshua has become paralyzed in the face of defeat in his life and leadership. This observation goes along really well with what I'm learning being a part of a recovery group we've started here at Southwest. On Thursday nights, there's a group of us going through this group called Journey to Freedom. And in this group, we've been learning the difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. Now, some people say, well, shame altogether is bad. Well, you know, guilt and shame kind of like pain can be good if it helps wake us up and helps us see our need to change. There's, there's healthy guilt, there's healthy shame where we recognize mistakes in our life, disobedient steps, even willful sin, and we recognize that we need to change. That can be healthy and lead to positive outcomes in our life. And we're going to describe that a little bit more fully later. On the other hand, toxic shame is what far too many people carry in their hearts and their lives throughout life. 
Toxic shame is not good. It's paralyzing. And instead of leaving, leading to change, it leads to despair. You see, instead of recognizing that we made a mistake, toxic shame in an individual's life leads the individual to begin viewing themselves as a mistake. Instead of simply saying, okay, I made a mistake here. The person that's struggling with toxic shame says, I'm a mistake. I think we see this here in Joshua. He's saying, God, was it a mistake that you appointed me to be a leader? Was it a mistake for us to cross the promised land? You see, there's all kinds of doubts in, in Joshua's heart. And because of what we find him down on the ground in despair, How about you in your life? Do you have that healthy shame that causes you to to recognize when you mess up and then you take a course of action and change? Or do you just wallow in toxic shame? And do you constantly beat yourself up saying, I'm a mistake, there's no hope. Unfortunately, that's what leads many people to get caught up in the cycle of destructive addictions in their life because they try to self-medicate to try deaden that pain and they they take a drug or alcohol to, to turn to that instead of realizing that they need to turn instead to the Lord. Where are you at in that? You see, it's in the moment of of confusion, despair, and even paralysis that Joshua is called into action. If you're taking notes, that's our third observation, third lesson, that when you have a defeat, when you realize you've made a mistake, when you recognize sin in your life, don't just wallow in shame. Move into action. Let's read about that in Joshua 7, verse 10. It says, the Lord said to Joshua, he's laying down on the ground. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Wow. Here we see the Lord calls Joshua out of his paralysis and despair, and he calls him into action. The Lord, in essence, is saying, I didn't make a mistake by calling you, Joshua. I didn't make a mistake when I led you across the Jordan River. Instead, the Lord is saying, you aren't the problem, Joshua. The problem is that Israel has made a mistake. Israel has sinned. There's defeat because there's sin in the camp. And he's saying to Joshua, now get up and do something about it. You see, Israel didn't simply go from victory to victory once they entered the promised land. They experienced setbacks like the one here at AI. The secret of occupying the promised land 
And being the people of God is to learn from setbacks and to keep taking action. The same is true in our individual lives as Christians. You see, living a victorious Christian life doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. But we have to be determined to keep learning from even painful lessons and keep making progress. You see, it isn't about being perfect. It's about continuing to take steps to make progress. Oftentimes in my life, maybe you feel this way at times, I feel like I take a couple steps forward and then I take a step back in life. Maybe you feel that way too. But the key is to keep taking steps forward. This week, I had another misstep in my life. It was on my day off, Monday. Mondays, I, I, I love Mondays. That's my day of rest. And, but I, I do stuff on Monday, okay? I pay bills and I do yard work. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like rest, but it's a rest from stuff I do the rest of the week. And I also like to go on walks. And, and, and on Mondays, I especially go on long walks outside and enjoy it. And, and while I walk, oftentimes I'll pray, and I'll pray about people in the church. I'll pray about people in my family. And on that day, I was on a long walk, and I was praying for, for my family, and I prayed for my wife, and she was t- top of the list, obviously, there. And, and, and I'm praying for her, and I'm praying, Lord, help me be a better husband. And, and, and I just really just leaned in there, and I said, Lord, show me how to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I know that's what I'm called to do. And I fall short so often. Show me how to do that, Lord. And I got kind of emotional about it. And then I went on to pray about other things. And then I got home and I thought, okay, oh, that was kind of long. I, I need to get to work now and some yard work. And, and wouldn't you know it about that time, Jane said, Roger, could you do this for me today on your day off? Now, I just finished praying that I could be selfless, Right? And I could love my wife as Christ loved the church. So you'd like to think that I said, oh, of course, honey. Let me jump to it. But you know what I said? I got a lot of yard work to do, Jane. Not sure if I can get to that. Then I start mowing the yard. And I'm reliving that conversation. And I'm thinking, what did you just pray, dummy? So I had to stop, go inside and apologize. And last hour, I forgot to tell him. I did what she asked me to do, okay? Some of you think, well, you just apologized. No, I put it into action. But you know, I thought that was a misstep. That was a misstep the way I responded to my wife. But I want to learn. Now, here's the thing. I'm far from a perfect husband, and maybe some of the other guys know that in their life. And maybe you ladies aren't a perfect wife. Maybe we're not perfect parents, friends, or perfect followers of Jesus, and yet we've got to be determined to continue to take action, to make progress, to learn from our missteps, and to keep taking the right steps. Are you willing to take those steps to make progress? The final and fourth point is it's a choice of repentance. That's where we see this leads. Now, if we keep reading the text, you'll see that there's a course of action that the Lord gives Joshua. He actually puts into place this this lottery to determine who it is that has sinned, who it is that's taken some of the devoted things. It's quite elaborate. It starts with the tribes, and then it goes down to the clans, and then it goes down to each family group in the clan. 
And I think it's important, you know, when we read texts like this and to see how sin affected the whole nation, it's important to note as one author wrote describing this text, in an age of rugged individualism, sin is properly understood as a single act committed by one person. However, Scripture points out that sin is interpersonal in many ways. I think we see that in our world, don't we? We see in families where there's been alcoholism, drug addiction, immorality, fits of rage, anger and control issues, to name just a few. And what do we see? We see these addictive behaviors and sins can have generational impact on a family or even a larger group of people. You see, sin is not only personal. It's also interpersonal. In fact, if we keep reading, we see that Achan's sin had devastating effects on his family. And let's read about what happens as Joshua confronts Achan in verse 19. It says, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. You see, it whittled all the way down to one person. Make your confession and tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Achan replied, it's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. They are hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. Now we can see from this text and the verses that preceded it, Achan didn't really have remorse for what he'd done. He doesn't have godly sorrow. He's not sorry. I mean, if he had true godly sorrow, when it started down that, you know, that, that road of the tribe, the clan, the family, he would have said, okay, guys, it's me. I did it. He waits, and I guess he's thinking that somehow he's going to still keep this hidden. And he waits until it lands on him. And he says, yeah, it's true. I, I sinned. I saw, I wanted, and I took. But like so oftentimes in life, it's the cover-up of trying to bury our sin that ends up getting us in trouble and even causing more trouble on our family. You see, some of us maybe walked in here today thinking that we had this sin or addiction buried deep enough that nobody would know about it. But the truth is you can't bury it deep enough. You see... Those secrets will eventually come to the surface. I like what Rick Warren said. He says, we're only as sick as our secrets. Are you like Achan trying to bury or hide a sin or practice an addiction, some secret? Now, here's the the reality. Burying it just means that you you carry the burden with you throughout life. And you carry that toxic shame and guilt and you don't experience the freedom and the joy that God wants you to. The Lord has a better way to resolve this and that's to develop true godly sorrow, to turn, to choose repentance and to find forgiveness that only he can bring into our life. 
If you keep reading in Joshua and Joshua chapter 8, after Joshua confronts the sin, after the sin is confronted and dealt with, God leads Israel to more victory. In fact, it's a really cool story in chapter 8, how the Lord gives them this ambush plan. It's kind of cool militarily. And, And they have this great victory. And after that victory, Joshua does what Moses had told him to do back in Deuteronomy. He says, when you get into the promised land, make sure you get these two mountains. And on one side, have the the commands of God read and all the blessings that come with it. On the other mountain, have the, the, the disobedience that God prohibits read and the curses that come with it. Have the people in the valley so they can see there's a choice to make. Do I obey God and choose his way and enjoy the blessings of living in the promised land? Or do I try to do it my way and rebel against God and face the curses that come with that? There's a choice for each of us. It's not that complicated. How are you going to respond to the choice the Lord's giving you today? In Deuteronomy 30, this is what Moses said today. I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You see, it's going to go better for your family. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land. The Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but when we take communion, in some ways it's the opportunity to see this contrast between blessings and curses. The Son of God left heaven, he came to earth, and he was willing to die on the cross. The Bible says that anyone who dies on a cross is cursed. Jesus was willing to endure cursing, curses on our behalf. We're the ones that deserve that, not him. When we take the bread, we're reminded of the body of Jesus Christ. We're reminded that he was willing to be cursed so that we wouldn't have to be. We're reminded of the blood of Jesus. And as we take the cup, we're reminded that it's only through Jesus Christ and through the fact that he was willing to be cursed on our behalf that we can enjoy forgiveness and blessing and a full life in Christ, enjoy the promised land living. Which have you chosen? Are you trying to rely on your own strength and your own goodness? Then the result is curses. Or if you want to accept Jesus' death on your behalf, as we have this time of communion, let's be grateful for the one who was willing to be cursed so that we could be blessed. And as we take communion, let's examine our hearts, as Scripture says. And let's ask ourselves, have I been trying to hide and bury things in my life instead of confronting them? Am I trying to keep secrets from God? He knows. Let's come clean to God during this time of communion. Let's allow this to be a time of consecration. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for these rich stories of the past and how they still speak into our lives today. Thank you for what we can learn from people of faith in the past. 
Help us during this time of communion be filled with gratitude that Jesus was willing to be cursed on our behalf. Help us, Father, to choose to respond to him and his love and his sacrifice. Help us, Father, examine our hearts and help us, Father, to truly surrender to his leadership during this time that we remember his body and his blood that was shed for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.